Well, good morning, everybody. <laughs> hope we're all doing well. Um, I hope we're all actually enjoying the freedom of Nomo May. I don't know if you guys have heard about it. I've been enjoying it for a couple weeks now, but I only learned about it Wednesday. Um, if you don't know about it, Nomo May is the this situation that everyone's not mowing their lawns until the end of May to help out the bees. So it's nice to have a good excuse not to mow my lawn and also to you know help the environment. It's a kind of a win-win there, but. As most of you know, um, we've been learning together over the last couple weeks about the one another's in scriptures. These are the places in scripture where we're exhorted to love one another, to encourage one another, and to confess to one another. And this morning, it's my privilege to kind of unfold what I've learned over the last couple weeks about the biblical command to comfort one another. Before I do that, though, I want to touch on what I think is a really important idea, and I think it's central to this series, really. As we walk through these one another's for the next couple of weeks, I think we're going to find that we really cannot give what we do not have. And that seems simple. It's simple to understand in physical terms. If I don't have a dollar, I can't give you a dollar. If I don't have a garden, I can't give you carrots and kale from the garden that I don't have. But it gets a little bit more nuanced when we talk about spiritual things. If I don't have comfort, if I don't have compassion growing in the garden of my soul, if I haven't received those things from God, I can't give those things away to others. If I haven't reaped a harvest of love in my relationship with God and with others, I can't bring a couple baskets of love to church on Sunday morning to give away to all of you. The reality is that we all have an abundance of love and compassion at our disposal. And it's just that we, sometimes we don't spend enough time in the garden. Yes, gardening is hard work, it's going to be dirty, but by the end of it, you're going to bear vegetables or fruit if you prefer. God's poured so much love and compassion onto us and we need to spend the time cultivating that relationship. With him, we can, if we cultivate that relationship with him, we can reap that harvest. And as we'll see this morning, when we reap that harvest, we have to give it away. Give it away to others by pouring love and compassion onto them. With that said, let's read our passage, our text for this morning. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 11. It should be on the screen behind me or open your Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received a sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. What is your definition of comfort this morning? When you imagine yourself, when you have a mental picture of yourself being comfortable, what's in that picture? What does it consist of? I know I have a few different elements in mine. I'm usually warm. That's usually because I have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea. And I'm usually in a really comfortable chair. And this is actually probably the most important thing because I'm just short enough to where my feet dangle off of most chairs and just barely touch the ground. I'm kind of in this weird state where my feet are like half on the ground. And it's a comfortable chair is just really important for me. <laughs> Another thing is I'm usually doing something that puts my mind at ease. I'm reading a good book or I'm watching a good movie. Now some of you will probably be you know, looking at me with your head sideways saying that I've got comfort all wrong. Some of you prefer to be on a beach or maybe in a tree stand. But some of you think I might be right on the money. But have you ever noticed that most of the things that we associate with comfort are things? Maybe you don't, but I think if we're honest with ourselves, most of us would have a list of things like I had that we kind of sum it up when we are asked about, hey, what's it mean to be comfortable? I think this is an import from the culture that surrounds us. You can't spend five minutes watching the commercials or ads that get aired today without coming away with the impression that to be comfortable, you need a luxurious hotel room, a couple pints of Ben and & Jerry's, and a couple series on Netflix or Disney Plus or whatever to binge. We've become experts in short-circuiting the pleasure centers of our brains. Our culture has tried to convince us that comfort is a state of contentment brought about by things. So when we read a passage like we've just read, we wince just a little bit. Because when the Bible talks about comfort, it doesn't talk about it as something we are given. It doesn't talk about something that's brought about by things. It talks about something that we are given from somebody else in the midst of suffering. We've pulled a really neat sleight of hand trick here. We've tried to cultivate systems and products that give the illusion of suffering, sorry, give the illusion of comfort without suffering. Now, a couple quantifying statements. Here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that the only way we can be happy is to suffer. I'm not trying to make us all into masochists. I'm not saying that we shouldn't enjoy the pleasures of this life. I'm not trying to turn us all into aesthetics. What I am saying is this. Running to these things for comfort, using them to hide from our worries and our troubles, using them to make us feel a certain way, it's always going to leave us off worse than we started. When we trust in things to do what only God can do, well, we have a word for that, and it's called idolatry. This disordering of affections is what I'm attacking, not the affections in and of themselves. 
Certainly, many of us have affections that are through and through terrible, and we shouldn't spend any time, money, or attention on them. But many of us also have affections that can be good. But just because they're acceptable doesn't mean they should be indulged in. There's another issue with this conception, this definition of comfort, and that's this. All of the things that I mentioned can be done alone. I don't think our culture, our world has a category for other people as essential to our comfort. I'll tell you this, God has that category. It's built into the word comfort. In the Greek, the word comfort is parakaleo. Kaleo meaning to call and para to be alongside or parallel to something. So the word literally means to call somebody to your side in your time of distress. It presupposes that other people are involved. Examples abound in scripture of this kind of comfort. I'm gonna mention just a few of them. In the book of Job, we see a man who's coming to great suffering and great pain. And in chapter two, verse 11 of that book, we read, now Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him and they came each from his own place and they made an appointment together to come and to show him sympathy and to comfort him. Now granted, if you keep on reading, they didn't do a very good job, mostly because they tried to theologize and explain and put blame on where these problems are coming from. Job, in fact, says, after hearing them talk for a while, he says, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. They had the right idea, though. Their inclination was correct, even though if they botched the execution. Let us go and comfort our friend. We see comfort as a reoccurring theme in Acts as well. In Acts 4.36, we're told that there was a man among the apostles named Barnabas. And his name means son of encouragement. But really, if you dive into that, encouragement's the same word that we're talking about, parakaleo, it's comfort. So Barnabas is literally the son of comfort. He's one who is apt and very good at bringing comfort to people. We see this, a manifestation of this in chapter 1531, when he and Paul bring a letter to the believers in Antioch and Syria and Sicilia. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. The letter is from the Jerusalem Council, and it is said that that letter greatly encouraged the believers in those places. One of my favorite examples is in the short and often overlooked Philemon. It's one chapter, but it's probably one of the most personal letters, maybe next to Timothy and Titus, that Paul writes. He writes it to his friend Philemon, and in verse 7 he says, I have derived much joy and comfort from you, my brother much joy and comfort from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Comfort is something that flows between people. Anytime we turn to things or systems or routines to try to comfort us instead of people and instead of God, we are turning to something that does not have what we are asking it for. Comfort's a human thing. Comfort's a God I'll be honest, while preparing for this sermon, I was convicted of a multitude of things I turned to for comfort before my wife, before my friends, and before my God. 
Those things for a while would assuage the discomfort I felt. They would convince me that there was nothing wrong or they would just distract me for a while. But sooner or later, the same old things would come back. The same old sins, the same old discomforts, and they'd come back stronger because they'd spent more time in the dark. I'd like to challenge us to take inventory this week Try and identify these things, these idols that you run to for comfort, and then try and start to replace them with the right response. Pray. Open up that dialogue, that conversation with God that Master, Pastor Matt was talking about last week. Bring your pain and your sorrows to him, and it does not need to be theologically correct. It does not need to be eloquent. It just needs to be. If you find yourself struggling with that, Reach out to a friend, reach out to a spouse, a mentor. It doesn't need to be a 45-minute therapy overload dump. It doesn't need to be any of that. It can be a five-minute phone call. It can be a one-line text. Hey, I'm struggling. Can you pray for me? I had to do this last week, a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago at this point. Time doesn't mean anything anymore. Um, <laughs> the, I, I, I was having a hard time, a hard week, so I texted a few brothers, and I was like, hey, I think it was almost verbatim, hey, having a hard time, don't know what's wrong, pray for me. It doesn't have to be clean, it doesn't, it has to be, it doesn't have to be like refined, it just has to be there. But whatever you do, just don't turn inward, don't isolate, don't turn to your idols. I'd also like to challenge us to practice some kind of fast. Abstaining from some of these idols often puts in perspective just how much we rely on them for our comfort. The goal here is to recognize that some of the things that we turn to are not inherently bad, but are taking the place of something much better. We become more aware of our dependence on our idols when we take a step away from them for a season, and awareness is the first step to the reordering of affections. Now, I've noticed that I've kind of shifted gears a little bit. I started by talking about sufferings and trials, and now I'm talking about what some could see as slight discomforts and slight inconveniences. I think sometimes we're too narrow in how we understand and describe suffering. I think we do ourselves a disservice by looking upon others with greater sufferings than ourselves and saying, well, I guess I don't suffer at all. That's not true. We all suffer more in some seasons than in others, for sure. But it's always there. And we shouldn't be treating all levels of suffering the same. Undoubtedly, some seasons of suffering are much more intense and much more severe. But suffering permeates everything. I suffer in my marriage. Why? Because I'm a sinful person and I let that sin infect my relationship with my wife. I suffer in my relationship with my kids. Why? Because it exposes my inabilities and my flaws, and I don't like that, so I react and lash out sinfully. I suffer at work because sometimes people don't do their job, and sometimes I really just don't want to do mine. Now, do I suffer greatly in these things? I, I wouldn't say so, no. But 
Am I called to face and engage that suffering wherever it rears its head? Absolutely. Whatever our level of suffering this morning, we should engage it. And the way Scripture teaches us to engage with suffering is mourning. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, Jesus teaches us with these words, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We live in a world where everything is some way infected by evil and death. Everything under the sun casts some shadow. Mourning is what happens in us when we stare the reality of our suffering in the face. We confront it, name it, and encompass it in these words, it's not supposed to be this way. We're not supposed to love sin more than we love God, but so often we do, don't we? We're not supposed to live at odds or in conflict with each other, yet we do. The innocent are not supposed to be killed, but they are. The refugees not supposed to be left without a home, but they are. Women and men are not supposed to be snatched up by the claws of death and have their strength stolen away by sickness and disease, yet they are. Brothers and sisters, we live in a world full of emptiness and built from brokenness. And there's not a day that goes by where we're not face to face with that reality. How do we react to it? How do we face up with that reality? There's a couple ways we can do that. One, we can deny it. And there may, that may be where some of us are today. But if we refuse to believe in the depth of the brokenness of this world, we are fools. And if we refuse to believe in the depth of the, our own brokenness, the Apostle John says that we are a liar and the truth is not in us. Ignoring these realities can lead to complacency, indulgence, and delusion. We can also be overwhelmed by these things to the point of despair. In fact, it is fear of exactly this that keeps some of us from facing this re these realities. We're scared that if we look at them again and we face them again, we're going to fall into a pit of despair too deep for us to come out of too deep for anyone to find us in. I know a couple people who have been terrified to reface and re-examine things from their past because of this, because they're, they were afraid that I'm just going to get lost in it. It's going to be too much. But take, but take heart, Jesus says for I have overcome the world. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. You can trust me, he says. I've already gone to hell for you once, and I'm going to be here next to you as we do it again and again and again. I'm not going anywhere. This is the third way of facing the realities of our suffering. 
squaring them up with Jesus at our side as our comforter, looking suffering and brokenness and hate and evil straight in the face and saying, you're not supposed to be here. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not inherently a hopeful or a comforting phrase. But Jesus comes and he meets us in those words with his own. And he says, I'm making all things new. I know it's not supposed to be this way, he says, but don't worry. I'm fixing it. The comfort of God, the consolation we receive in our suffering is this. That God has worked, is working, and will complete his work of restoration. This is the comfort that Paul had in our passage this morning. He says in verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. He's basing his understanding of who God is on what he has and will continue to do. This morning, I want to take a step back and I want to give you all a little bit of time and I'm going to give you the time, so sit in silence if you want, but I want us to take a look at our story, the timeline of our lives from its beginning to when we might think it will end. Try and just frame that. Take a few, few seconds to do that. Where does your story begin? Where do you start your story when you tell it? Let me say this. If it doesn't start at the cross, you're starting in the wrong place. Your life began 2,000 or so years ago when God himself came down from heaven and died for you in the most gruesome and uncomfortable way imaginable a death that you and I deserved. Your life began when Jesus, stronger than death, with love much greater than your sin, rose from the grave and killed sin and death. If by faith you acknowledge this morning Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, that is where your story begins. Where does your story end? If your life begins at the cross and the empty tomb, I know exactly where it ends this morning. And it's not in some wooden box, it's not in some ceramic vase, and it's not in some stone sepulcher. Let me read for you where God says your picture ends this morning. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the tr sound of the trumpet of God, and he will say, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne in heaven says, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for it is faithful and it is true. It is finished. Amen, church? And it would be really nice, really nice to end it there this morning. Go out on a high note. That's where we're going. That's where our hope lies. But we're not there yet. A couple years ago now, Pastor Tory over in Troy said something during one of, I think it was one of the minor prophets he was preaching on. I can't remember which one. And he said this. It's always stuck with me. He said, no matter how long the journey is, I can make it if I know that it leads home. So I want to leave us with a few practical tips for our journey home. A few things that we can do right here on the road. Whatever our level of suffering in this world, we're called as faithful stewards to face it, mourn it, and be comforted because it's not just for us. In verse 4 of our passage this morning, Paul says that we are comforted by God so that we can comfort one another. That's the purpose. That's the goal of the comfort we receive from God. When we are a part of the church, of the body of Christ, no blessing given to us is meant to end with us. The produce from our spiritual garden is not meant to fill our bellies only. To be sure, it is much easier to sympathize with someone if you've been through the same thing as them. There's something really powerful in seeing your tears on someone else's face. But the beauty of this conception of comfort is this, that when we share in each other's sufferings, we share also in each other's comforts. I may not have gone through what you've gone through, but I've watched and weeped with someone else as they've gone through the same thing. Their sorrows became my own, and now I'm more equipped to come alongside you in your time of need. And this isn't, isn't this exactly what Jesus did? He came and suffered so that he could be a high priest who understands our struggles and meets us in them. When we as the body of Christ share together in our own sufferings, in Christ's sufferings, we also share together in each other's comfort and in Christ's comfort. When you have a sister or a brother in need of comfort, don't feel like you need to solve their problem because you can't. Only Jesus can do that and he's working on it. He's gonna do it. He's faithful and he's true. Just sit with them in silence. Don't theologize about their problems. Just as the Holy Spirit carries our groanings to the throne of God in prayer, he comforts others in our presence in silence in ways that our own words never could. Paul concludes his passage by saying, pray for me. 
Even Job's friends had the right idea. And when we read further on in the passage we started reading, it says that they sat with Job in silence for seven days. They didn't want to say anything because they saw how great his suffering was. Eventually they broke and they felt like they needed to say something. If you say anything, point each other backward to the cross and forward to the kingdom. Backward to the God of the nail wounds and forward to the God of all comfort. As we close this morning, I want to remind all of us that we're on the verge of a glorious sunrise. But if you've ever been awake during a sunrise, you've noticed that it's in the earliest part of the morning that the shadows seem longest. In the hours before the sun breaches the horizon. We've all lived and will live our earthly lives in the few moments before the dawn. But take comfort in these words that the people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who've dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone, the first promises of a magnificent dawn. Until that revealing, when our king returns and banishes the night, we sit here. Together we sit here in the shadows, reminding ourselves by communion and by raising our voices together in songs of worship and longing, reminding ourselves that the current darkness is not eternal. We sit together in the shadows, reminding each other that dawn is almost here and that King Jesus is coming for us. Let's pray, church. Father, I frankly have no clue where everyone in this everywhere everyone in this place is this morning. But I know that you are a faithful God. One that's going to meet all of us exactly where we are. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would make us homesick. You would reorder our affections, you would capture our hearts and renew our minds. You would change us. You would make us look more like Jesus. Lord, we thank you and we love you.